Welcome to The Potter Scholar. I am your host, Natasha Burge, and together we will be taking a scholarly approach to the Harry Potter books. I have a PhD in creative writing and spent many years in academia studying literature, and here we will explore various aspects of the books to celebrate the magic they have given us. And if you want to know more about The Potter Scholar or support the podcast, please check out the link to my Patreon in the episode description. Wands out! On today's episode, I am going to be discussing the use of literary alchemy in the Harry Potter books. John Granger, in his fascinating book, How Harry Cast His Spell, has written a definitive exploration of the way Rowling uses alchemy as a story structure to explore Harry's personal transformation throughout each book and the series. As Granger says, alchemy is staring us in the face when it comes to the Potter series. It's there in the title of the first book, the names of key characters, and the story arc of each book and the series as a whole make it undeniable that there is underlying alchemical infrastructure to these works. Alchemy is thousands of years old, with roots in ancient Egypt, India, and Greece. Now, we tend to think of alchemy today as a medieval protoscience. It is, in fact, what chemistry eventually grew out of. And what alchemists were trying to do was turn base metals into gold and discover a philosopher's stone that would make an elixir of immortality. But historians believe that alchemy had a deeper purpose, including Mircea Eliade, who I mentioned in the first episode of this season. This deeper purpose was philosophical and spiritual. It was, in essence, the science of the human soul and how the human soul could be purified, improved, and transformed. When looked at symbolically, the soul can be seen as the base metal, the lead, that the alchemical process transforms into precious gold. It was a way that people in medieval times understood consciousness and psychology. They equated the journey of their lives as we are in our lives, as we are tried and tested and hopefully (laughs) improved through challenges, to chemical reactions they were just beginning to understand and study, such as catalysts, desiccation and dissolution, the binding of components, and the chemical transformations of the objects they studied. Alchemists working within the framework of a monotheistic religion like Christianity saw alchemy as a path to divine truths. Granger argues that the philosopher's stone, which was supposed to turn lead to gold and was a component in making an elixir that granted immortality, was seen as a symbol of Christ. The transmutations, the transmutation of elements was seen as symbolic of the personal journey of the individual soul on a path toward communion with God and the everlasting life promised by the Christian faith. Now, alchemical texts were were very cryptic. They didn't just state this openly. They didn't say, here's what we are symbolically referencing. They were not written in a way that was typically clear about this internal spiritual transformation. It was all referenced parenthetically and symbolically. And alchemy as a symbol for personal transformation over the centuries became a device in English literature with writers and playwrights such as Shakespeare, Don, Chaucer, Eliot, Joyce, Tolkien and Lewis 
working its imagery and themes and the processional alchemical cycle into their work. This is very interesting. Rowling was asked in a 1998 interview if she had ever wanted to be a witch. And her answer is really revealing. She said that she never had wanted to be a witch, but an alchemist? Now that's a different matter, she said. And then she went on to say that to invent the wizarding world of Harry Potter, she had to learn a ridiculous amount about alchemy. She said she had to know in detail what could magic do, what couldn't it do, in order to set the parameters and, here's a really important part, I think, and establish the story's internal logic. Now, what I believe she's referring to by this internal logic of the stories, it goes beyond just you know, what can be taught at Hogwarts with potions, for example. Um, what, what I think she's referring to is alchemy informing the internal logic of the stories is the three-part alchemical transformation Harry undertakes in each book. So I think in a very oblique way, she is referencing that that is the story structure, the sort of architecture that formed that aspect of these books. So we're going to look today at that three-part transformation, and we'll do that in just a moment, and it will form the main focus of this episode. But first, I just want to reference a few other alchemical aspects of these books, because there are so many. To start with, the name of the first book, of course, The Philosopher's Stone. Then there is the names of characters, such as James, Lily, Hermione, Albus, and Rubius. But what I really just want to touch on right here is the way that Hermione and Ron represent an alchemical process that is working on Harry. So alchemists purified base metals by dissolving and reworking the metal using two principal catalysts, which they saw as reflecting the masculine and the feminine. Alchemical sulfur represented the masculine, which is impulsive and red, then there is quicksilver, which represents the feminine and cool component. Together, these two were thought to break down metals and work them towards their purification into gold. It's John Granger's contention that Ron represents the red, brash, bold sulfur, while Hermione, cool and quick thinking, represents mercury. HG, which is Hermione's initials, is the chemical sign for mercury, interestingly, and in Ron and Hermione's constant bickering around Harry, they work at him over the years, transforming him. And it's no wonder then to learn that the nickname in alchemical circles for sulfur and quicksilver is the quarreling couple. I thought that was really interesting. But today in this episode, I want to focus on the most important alchemical aspect of these books, the three-stage transformation Harry undergoes in each book and across the series as a whole, as he is spiritually transformed from lead to gold. We can see this as the hero's journey, but in Rowling's hands, the hero's journey is saturated with the alchemical cycle of transformation. These three stages are the black stage, which is negredo, the white stage, which is albedo, and the red stage, which is rubido. Every challenge Harry faces is specifically designed to break him down or purify him in a way that leads to his ultimate improvement and, critically, his ability to defeat Voldemort. The Harry that we start out with in these books 
could not defeat Voldemort. And not just because he's 11 years old and doesn't know magic. Because when you think about it, Harry, he doesn't actually defeat Voldemort because he's the better wizard. In head-to-head magical combat that was judged solely on magical skill, Voldemort would beat Harry every time. The reason that Harry is finally able to beat Voldemort then is because over the seven years of these books, his alchemical journey has transformed him into the better person. It's his personal qualities of bravery, kindness, and loving self-sacrifice that allow him to defeat Voldemort, qualities that were a direct result of his alchemical transformation. So let's discuss these three stages. First, we have Negredo, the black stage. This is dissolution. This initial stage sees the impure metal, or the character's soul, is broken down, outmoded states of being that no longer serve or they're useless. They're killed off, destroyed, and it's all dissolved into the original substance of creation known in alchemy as the prima materia. This is done in order that the impure metal, or the human soul, can be remade anew and better. John Granger suggests that Sirius Black is named for this stage. The second stage is the white stage, albedo, and it's all about purification. This is known as the white work, and it involves cleansing, washing, turning the prima materia a brilliant white, making it pure and spotless. Symbols for this stage are the moon and lilies. Maybe Albus is named for this stage, Granger suggests, as Albus is Latin for white. The third and final stage is the Rubido stage, which is the red stage, which is all about congealing and bringing together and perfection. The matter, or the soul, which was broken apart in the black stage, purified in the white stage, is now ready to be brought together and reunited. Granger says perhaps Rubius Hagrid was named for this stage, as Rubius is Latin for red. A common symbol of this stage of the alchemical process and the Philosopher's Stone is the red lion, which is, of course, the symbol of Gryffindor House. Interestingly, as as I was learning about the the three stages of the alchemical cycle, I couldn't help but think how neatly they correspond to the three basic stages of initiatory myths which are separation, initiation, and return. Now, each book takes Harry through this three-stage alchemical transformation, while at the Dursleys on Privet Drive and at Hogwarts through Snape and Draco, um, you know, a teacher and a student who bully him sometimes to a breaking point, Harry is broken apart. He suffers and struggles, and he seems to have no escape. Then the white work begins, which is overseen by master alchemist Dumbledore. Harry is guided, sometimes quite remotely, it is true, to make sense of things, to become a better person, to embrace his finer qualities and forego his weaker ones, and he slowly begins to shine. And then finally, at the end of the year, he enters the Rubido, the red stage, the climactic scene where Harry dies a figurative death and is always saved by love. As we go through the seasons of this podcast and do our reread of each book, we'll look at how the alchemical stages play out in detail in every book. For now, though, let's go through John Granger's bird's eye view of Harry's alchemical transformation in each book. So in the beginning of The Philosopher's Stone, we see Harry 
living without knowledge of who he really is and what he is capable of. He's mistreated by the Dursleys, and it seems he's no one special, and he's not capable of anything much. But by the end of the book, Harry knows who he is, he's stepped into his destiny to become a wizard, and he is a hero who has prevented Voldemort from getting the Philosopher's Stone. In the Chamber of Secrets, Harry is being kept prisoner by the Dursleys, and when he gets to Hogwarts, he's consumed with doubts about who he is, and he feels very sorry for himself, and he's very conflicted. But at the end of the book, he's no longer a prisoner and is, in fact, saving someone else from being held captive, Ginny. And he's confident in who he is, and he knows that it is his choices that determine his character. In The Prisoner of Azkaban, which is just, to me, I think, maybe the most striking transformation, Harry begins the book as someone who feels he must offend the memory of his parents to such a volatile extent that when Aunt Marge insults them, he flies off the handle and inflates her like a balloon, risking his expulsion from Hogwarts. But by the end of the book, he has gone through challenges that transform him so much and in such a specific way that he ends up defending Peter Pettigrew, the man who sold his parents out to Voldemort. As John Granger puts it, in the course of one year, Harry goes from unforgiving judgment to selfless mercy. In Goblet of Fire, we start with a Harry who is obsessed by what other people think of him. He wants to prove himself. He needs people to see him in the way he wants to be seen. But by the end of the book, he doesn't care so much when the press gets him totally wrong because he has grown to be confident in who he is and he is more aligned with the knowledge of what really matters in life. In Order of the Phoenix, Harry is he's driven to gain knowledge through external sources. Um, he wants news of the wizarding world in the beginning of the book, and then he wants to know what the Order is up to, what Voldemort is up to. He is desperate for news without regard for whether or not he is actually in a position to be able to use this information wisely. By the end of the book, he understands that he needed to be cultivating inner wisdom, trust, discernment, and sadly, he has paid a high price for that. Although, a little aside, this is not to argue that Dumbledore didn't make a big mistake in the way he handled Harry this year. Um, in Half-Blood Prince, we, uh, we begin the book with Harry waiting restlessly for Dumbledore to pick him up from Privet Drive. He even doubts that Dumbledore will be even there. By the end of the book, though, Harry has been so transformed, so much so that he is Dumbledore's man through and through. Even though Dumbledore is gone, Harry feels his presence more keenly than ever. And in Deathly Hallows, we have the alchemical transformation of which all the previous transformations have been foreshadows. As the book begins, Harry's faith is profoundly shaken by revelations of Dumbledore's past. He doubts. He feels abandoned. He doesn't know why Dumbledore didn't clue him into the bigger plan. Through the course of this book and the grievous losses Harry must face and the way he is challenged and rises to the occasion, Harry learns an absolutely vital lesson. Once again, it all comes down to choice, but this time it's not just the choice to be kind or courageous, but the choice to have faith. Harry must make a choice whether or not he believes in Dumbledore. Ultimately, Harry chooses to believe. He chooses faith. 
and is that choice that allows him to discern and follow the plan that Dumbledore laid out for him. And it is by following that plan, having the courage to sacrifice his life for everyone else, that he is able to once and for all vanquish Voldemort. Now, readers identify with characters. Storytelling is one of the oldest art forms we have, and it is ultimately an art that shows us how best to live. And as a character moves through the alchemical stages of transformation, the reader is transformed right along with them. This fits in neatly with Mircea Eliade's contention that in a secular world, reading great literature can serve as a sacred function. And as we leave behind our worldly self-focused thoughts, we experience a world of transcendent meaning. So as Harry is alchemically broken down, purified, and put back together again, the reader experiences some of that too, growing and improving as they read each chapter. It is one of the wonders of great literature, a magic, if you will, that moves off the page and into us. And that brings us to the end of today's episode of The Potter Scholar. Next time you are rereading one of the Potter books, I'd encourage you to be on the lookout for these alchemical stages that I've discussed here. There are so many hints, even small, subtle ones about certain colors in a scene or attributes of a certain character that pepper the pages of these books, all pointing toward these alchemical stages. And it can be fascinating to be on the watch for them. Until next time, happy reading. And if you want to know more about The Potter Scholar or support the podcast, please check out the link to my Patreon in the episode description.